Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. And David will come and read that for us. First Samuel chapter 6. First Samuel 6, starting at verse 19. You remember last week, uh, the Ark of the Covenant went to the Philistines and um, people there were plagued by the Lord and the, the Ark was sent back to the Israelites and um, they built an altar when the, when the, when the Ark came. And we're, we're going to pick up at uh, verse 19 and continue on through the end of chapter 7. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. 
And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called, called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year from Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word. And each week we remember that even though the grass withers and the flowers fade, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, we just thank you for your word that it has been preserved. And Lord, we just uh, see your faithfulness, Lord, here again. We see your holiness, Lord, that you are set apart, you're enthroned, and you're above all guiding and ordaining the affairs of all things on this earth. And we thank you for that. And even as we are gathered here together, Lord, this morning, we pray that as Pastor Aaron brings your word, that you would work in our hearts, that you would just uh, illuminate our hearts, Lord, to your word, and that you would help us, Lord, not to uh, focus and be distracted by the things of this world, but just grow in love and adoration and praise of you. Please also be with Pastor Aaron as he brings your word, Lord. Just grant him courage and boldness and, and strength in that. All this we ask in Christ's name and all. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, David. Well, this morning I did something maybe a little dangerous. I, uh, or this week, I should say, decided to try handwriting my, my notes, which may backfire on me. So if I just freeze at some point, just know that I can't read my own writing and uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll get through it. But uh, um, no, it's a blessing to once again come together and open up God's word as we consider the ongoing account that is in First Samuel, uh, really an incredible account of, of God's work among his people. And this morning the title is uh, Samuel the Prophet of God. Samuel the Prophet of God as we really begin to see a shift within the account here from that of uh, just an aimless wandering by the nation of Israel to now a real turning to the Lord and a longing to, uh, to once again be in, in fellowship with God and to worship him as he had instructed. And sometimes the most terrifying thing for us is to get what we want. Uh, and we see that very clearly in, in children. Maybe we've tried this as parents or maybe you remember your parents doing it to you when you were maybe at a friend's house or at your favorite playground and they were telling you it's time to go. And you didn't want to go. You wanted to stay and play. And so 
uh, as a little bit of uh, maybe a, a lesson or reverse psychology, the parents say, okay, well, we're going to go and uh, you have a nice time. And then they begin making their way to the vehicle and the, the child realizes, oh, maybe mom and dad are serious. Maybe they're actually going to leave me. And this moment of terror comes over the child where they begin panicking and running and screaming towards mom and dad. Please, no, don't leave. I, I want to come. And, uh, and sometimes that's exactly, I think, what the Lord does for his children. They go on in rebellion. They chase after the false gods of the nations. And so at times the Lord will hand them over to those sinful desires and allow them to feel something of the emptiness of it, something of the dread of it, to to experience the, the distancing of God for his children is one of the most terrifying things. But it has the the good effect of causing us to once again draw near to him and to once again evaluate his word. And so in many ways, since we have began this study, we saw uh, a bright spot in the midst of the darkness through the example of Hannah and her faith and and her prayer that God would grant her a son. And, And we've seen the Lord in the little boy Samuel preparing for himself a prophet and something of a, a priest and also something of a final judge for Israel. Samuel is, is a very unique uh, character in that way that he functions in, in many different roles. And, and yet, in the, in, insofar as the nation is concerned, it has been very dark indeed. The, the priesthood it was in complete disarray, complete disregard for the law of God. They were taking advantage of their position. They were abusing the people. They were ignoring God's commands and fattening themselves on what was supposed to be the sacrifices made to God. And so God told them that he was going to bring about a swift judgment upon Eli and upon his two wicked sons. And so we've seen that happen in a very severe way. The Lord turns them over to the Philistines. And they lost uh, initially 44,000 fighting men. And then on top of that, as, as David mentioned, we saw last week the Ark of God went into exile, as it seemed. For the first time in the history of Israel, for over 400 years, this has never happened. They had never been without the Ark of God. And, and God, as a way to, to help the nation see how far they had gone off track, The ark goes into the camp of the enemy. But of course, God himself was not subdued, nor was he uh, restricted by the Philistines that he brought the nation to its knees. He dismantled the false god Dagon. He distressed them last week, we saw, with the disease of the tumors, with the, the plague of the rats and the mice that ravaged the land. And in the end, they... They built a new cart. They set up this test where two cows that still had calves would be sent off with the ark. And they were trying to figure out if this was all coincidence or was this actually the hand of, of the God of Israel against them. And, and sure enough, the two cows lead the ark uh, for probably around seven-ish miles to the little town of Beth Shemeth, which was a border town and probably inhabited by a fair number of Levites. And there these cows finally come to a stop and the, the, uh, the five lords of the of Philistines, we were told just previous, were actually following this cart. They wanted to see what was gonna happen and they were gonna report back 
they had this cart with the ark and the golden tumors they made as an offering to God. And once the citizens of Beth Shemeth take the ark down, uh, we find that the, the Philistines, they go back to their fortified cities. But as we continue on to look at the account, uh, something maybe unexpected happens. The Lord strikes out against the people of Israel, against these men of Beth Shemeth, were told because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. So this morning, as we consider this transition in Israel's history, first I want to see God's reminder to the people of Israel. And then we're going to see God's reformation through the prophet Samuel. And finally, we'll see God's redemption over the enemies of Israel. And so what exactly is happening here in verse 19? Um, It seems that the people are very excited as they see the ark of God returning. It's been seven months and they have not really known what's gone on. They've been without the ark. As far as the Israelites were concerned, maybe God had had finally abandoned them completely. Maybe it was the end of the covenant, the end of the the, the promises. Uh, They they didn't really know exactly what this meant other than they, as they said, the the glory of God has departed. So as the ark comes back to this town, where we find that they are, uh, in verse 13, if you back up just a minute, they were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, And so they're out in the fields, they're harvesting their wheat, and suddenly they look up, and here is this apparently driverless cart carrying the ark of God upon it. And they rejoice to see it, we're told, in verse 13. And they immediately uh, take the ark off, and they set it beside a great stone. They split up this cart, and they slaughter the cows as an offering to God. And so then we wonder in verse 19, why is it that God then strikes the very men who were excited to see the ark and who were sincerely trying to care for it? And uh, and yet God, we're told, kills 70 men and their response begins to look something like the Philistines. They also begin to play a sort of hot potato with the ark of God. And they say, who can stand before this holy God? We, we can't keep this ark here. It must go somewhere else. And they contact Kiriath Jerim, another community, probably with some other uh, Levites there that uh, would take the ark and house it in, in the house of Eleazar. And we might ask a few questions about this passage initially. We may ask, well... Why didn't God kill the Philistines in this way for looking upon the ark? We, we know he afflicted them with tumors and with disease and, and, and the mice and such, but we don't read that God struck them dead immediately simply because they looked upon the ark of God. So why didn't he respond that way to the Philistines? And then we might also ask, why is God punishing those who seem sincerely glad to see the ark and are trying to do what they think is best in caring for it. I think the answer to both of those questions, under this reminder that God gives his people, the answer is similar. It is that God is in covenant with Israel, not Philistia. Israel had stood at the base of the Mount Sinai 
and there entered into covenant with God. And God told them, if you obey me, if you do all that's written in this law, then I will bless you. But if you disobey me, if you ignore the law that I give you, then I will curse you. And everything that you touch will be cursed. And this was the, 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 the beginnings of the Mosaic Covenant. And the people of Israel agreed to the terms. They said, yes, we will, we will do this. We will walk in, in obedience to God. And so the way in which God treats his covenant people is different than the way in which God treats the pagan nations around them. Philistia had not entered into such a covenant with God. They did not have the, the law and instructions and in caring for the ark. They knew very little of the God of Israel. They still sort of assumed that Israel um, worshipped a, a, a pantheon of gods. They, they didn't even understand that, that Israel was monotheistic. And so God deals with them in a very different way than he does his covenant people. You see, the covenant people, Israel... They had an obligation not only to know the law, to know what God's word said, but to uphold it and to walk in obedience to it. The the worship in Israel at this time is in complete chaos. The the word of God was not being taught. The the priesthood was all but dismantled. And they have begun to adopt this sort of casual or even superstitious approach to the God of the covenant. You see, God himself had not changed. He is the same God who was there at Mount Sinai and and met with Moses and gave them the law and gave them the instruction and established which tribe of of Israel was able to to offer up the sacrifices and, and who it was that was to care for the ark and where the ark was to be kept and who could look on it and who could not. God gave all of these instructions to Israel very clearly. But they began to disregard the law of God. And, and I think probably even for these men at Beth Shemeth, there probably was a sense of ignorance. They may have just not known that not anybody can just walk up to the ark of God and, and begin moving it, even looking upon it. There were very clear directions given by God. And there, there was a reason why it was kept in the Holy of Holies. That it was separated from the common people of Israel as an indication to them That God is holy. You don't just casually walk into his presence. If you do that, you will die. And they had forgotten that. They had begun to to assume that God would accept their sincerity and their good intentions. Forgetting that God had established his law and that he had not changed but would uphold the word that he gave to Moses. So the ark, we're told, is put in the house of Eleazar, and it stays there for 20 years. This is an incredible amount of time when you consider that for the entire existence of this nation since being established before Mount Sinai, that the tabernacle had been central in their worship, central in their feasts, and central in the bringing of the sacrifices. And now, not only is the ark put into, uh, seems like maybe a room or in somebody's house for 20 years, but we're not told anything of the lamp of the Lord. We're not told anything of the table for the showbread. We're not told anything of the altar of incense. 
Where are they even offering sacrifices? The, the, the tabernacle at Shiloh seems to be completely abandoned. It perhaps was destroyed. Maybe it's just old and decrepit from sitting there for hundreds of years. And in that sense, the ark is homeless. It's a really shocking picture of the state of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this is why God reminds them with this severe act of judgment. I am still the God of the covenant. I'm the God who stood and talked to Moses. I'm the God who was there when when I ascended upon the mountain and the people were not even to, 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 to touch. They didn't want to go near the mountain because of the fear of this God. And so now these men casually come up to the ark and they offload the ark and they're probably, you know, admiring to, to see it again. Maybe some of them had never seen the ark. And 70 of them die as a reminder of who God is and of their need for sacrifice, for an intercessor. And I think in a similar way, there's application for us as well as we consider God's dealing with the church, the covenant people of God, there is a unique way in which God deals with his people when compared to that of the world. The, we think of the, even the seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus was not so much concerned with the, the, the pagan nations of their day as he was the churches. Those covenant communities that belonged to Christ, that professed faith in him, that were covered by his blood. It was them that Jesus had the strong warnings and admonitions. And it was them that he comes against and confronts their idolatry, confronts their immorality. And actually in 1 Peter 4, 17, we find that Peter makes a comment about judgment coming to the household of God first. Back to James. 1 Peter 4 and verse 17. I'll just back up to 15 and give you a little bit of the context. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter's reminding the Christians that that God will come first to his people, first to his covenant people, and they will be held to account. They will be judged because they are the people of God. They have the word. They have the promises. They have the instruction. They should know better. And even just going um, back a few pages, as we think about us in the, the new covenant in Christ's blood, no longer under the Mosaic covenant, we may think, yeah, well, we don't really have to be all that concerned in the way that we worship God, the way that we approach God, the way we talk of God, because, well, we're not under that old covenant system. And so 
you know, we are covered by grace. Well, yes, that is true, but that does not mean we can then, you know, worship and, and, and think of God in whatever form that we want. Look what the author of Hebrews says in, um, I think I have 12, 12, 18. And he compares the Mosaic covenant, but contrasts it uh, as well with, with what, what we enjoy in Christ. He says in Hebrews twelve eighteen, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearts beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase yet, more, uh, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So there's not a diminishing of reverence and a diminishing of awe in the new covenant. In fact, he's arguing there should be an increase as we consider the, the, the revelation of God, the clarity of the gospel, the fact that Christ himself is our mediator. We don't, we don't look to Moses, but to Christ, the Son of God. And so our worship must also be carefully in obedience to God's word. And we must offer it with a sense of holy reverence and, yes, joy and, and love, but also this element of, of trembling before a holy God. And it's important for us to ask ourselves, what ways are we tempted to add in the Baals and the Ashtaroth? Both Baal and Ashtaroth, as far as I understand, were Canaanite gods, uh, fertility gods. Ashtaroth was some sort of goddess that they worshipped to, to bless them in uh, the fruit of the womb and this sort of thing. And, and Israel had, had adopted some of these gods into their worship of some Baal here and Ashtaroth. And yes, of course, we still worship Yahweh. We still worship the true God. But, but we also have added to our worship these other gods of the nations around us. And we have to ask ourselves, in what ways are we tempted as the church of Jesus Christ today to adopt the pagan idols or philosophies of our day. For example, we may be told that why can't we just accept that some people are just born attracted to the same sex and that's just the way they are. They can't help it. 
And, and you can't call that sin because it's the way they're made. Why can't you people just get on board? Quit calling it sin. Quit, quit trying to call them to repentance and conform to the pattern of the Bible. I mean, we literally have laws in our land that, that they refer to as, as uh, um, anti-conversion laws. Now, of course, what they define as conversion is very extreme and, and you know, the sort of forced you know, using electrical shock and all this bizarre stuff, which I've never even heard of happening in this country. But we, we know where it's heading. We, we, know, we know the agenda conformed to the spirit of the age. Or maybe someone says, or the, the church is tempted to, to say, well, why don't we just let go of the differences between men and women in the home and in the church? Like, why, why still hold on to these ancient practices of, of roles as men and women? Why can't, why can't you guys just come into the 21st century? Like, what's the big deal if you have a woman pastor? It's fine. This is part of the freedom that we have in Christ, we are told. Or maybe we're tempted to go along with the notion that, well, the Bible was written so long ago, and, and it's written by really uneducated men and so we can't expect them to actually understand what we know about science and 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 we can't look at the bible as actually authoritative i mean do you actually believe that there were talking serpents and talking donkeys i mean come on it's time to 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 move into the the new age of science you know we're tempted to to go along with all of these bales and astroth of our day we're told to not be so exclusive, that, that Jesus is loving, he's, he's gracious. There must be other ways for other religions to get into heaven. To say that Jesus is the only way is, is so narrow-minded. Maybe it's on the matter of hell. Sadly, so many today find it completely uh, unacceptable to hold to a literal eternal hell that God would actually cast people into judgment forever and ever. And they say, no, no, we must reject that, that God is loving. He would never allow such a place. And the church begins to, to take in these philosophies, take in these, these doctrines, and soon they find themselves in a room full of idols. Even over the last years, more and more we hear, well, don't be so... Don't be so adamant about gathering together. What's the big deal? You don't have to go to church on Sunday. You can worship in your living room. You can worship over, over the, the, the internet. You don't have to gather together. Or even the you know, creator of the, um, the Chosen series, I, mean, I know he tried to backtrack and stuff, but argued initially that, well, the Mormons, they love Jesus of Nazareth too. Don't you realize we're just worshiping the same Jesus? We're just loving the same Jesus? We don't have to be so critical. The JWs say they love Jesus. The Mormons say they love Jesus. Why do we have to question it beyond that? And you see that we are also in danger of altering the word of God, of adopting this, the spirit of the age, the philosophies of the world around us and soon we find ourselves distanced from God, at enmity with God, God himself warring against us because we have broken the covenant. We've departed from his word. 
Or maybe even hitting closer to home, um, Ben gave me a little book by Thomas Wilcox, I think is how you say his name. And uh, very convicting, and he made the statement, do not legalize the gospel as if part of the gospel remained for you to do and suffer. Let sin break your heart, but not your hope in the gospel. And just confronting the, the idolatry of, of looking to ourselves, looking to our performance, looking to even my progress in the faith as some sort of, of assurance for, for my salvation instead of continually turning our eyes upon Christ, continually looking upon his finished work upon the cross instead of beginning to look inward at my progress, my faith, or even my sin and, and being overwhelmed with, with, with how poorly I'm doing. And, and, and that can also be a form of uh, pride where we refuse to receive the fullness of what Christ has done and we'd rather continue to loathe at how poorly we're doing. So subtle. Calvin said that our hearts are idle factories. And certainly I feel that in myself. And as we look around at the many various idols of our day, we too can be so quickly like Israel. And God reminds us to turn from them. For many of you are around uh, gardens and growing things. And uh, so look at some of the plants. I, I don't know what category they're technically called. The ones that send out vines and crawl around, around the the ground, David will know that the uh, legumes, no, that's the <laughs> peas. Anyways, you know what I'm talking about. And, and looking at the, these peas, as they grow, they're constantly sending out these little green feelers that will wrap around anything they come in contact with and they, they cling to it and they begin climbing. You can put up a wire fence and have them climb up the fence with these little feelers that they're, they're constantly putting out. And in some ways, that is a picture of us. Uh, in our flesh, we are constantly looking for something to, to grasp onto, to cling onto. And I think that through the word, we have to daily be chopping off all of those little feelers that are going out, trying to cling to anything but Christ, anything but his word. And it is an ongoing battle. But we find a, a hopeful statement here, even as God reminds them of his holiness, he reminds them of the, 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 the law that they are under. We read that the people of Israel, um, it, it says that they lamented after the Lord in verse 2. And the word could also be understood as the house of Israel yearned after the Lord. So there's this almost idea that, that there is a growing desire among the 12 tribes to once again know the nearness of God. For many years, they have only known God's distance, the silence from God. The glory had departed and they long, they're beginning to long to know the glory of God again, to, to see the Lord fight for them and to know his nearness, to, to understand how they are to worship this God, to draw near to him in the way that he has prescribed. And so we see not only God reminds the people, but he also brings about reformation through the prophet Samuel. And we have Samuel really beginning to step into the forefront as he ministers to the 12 tribes. And Samuel gives them a decisive call as the reformer, if you will. 
He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel were told, put away the Baals and Ashtaroth and they serve the Lord only. And Samuel calls them together at Mizpah. And he says, I will pray to the Lord for you. And so we see this shift happening in Israel. Not only is there this heartfelt yearning for God, this, this longing to be in communion with the Lord, but Samuel stands as the prophet of God and he says, if you want to know God's nearness, here's the way forward. You put away the Baals, you put away the Ashtaroth, and you devote your entire being to the Lord, to his word, to worshiping him alone. Get rid of all of the idols that you have been collecting. And by God's grace, that's the response. They, they put away the bales. They, they get rid of these idols. Did they burn them? Did they knock them down? Did they bury them? Whatever it is that they did, we see throughout Israel's history at different times, they would cut them down, they would burn them, they would destroy them. And, and this takes place. And there is a, there is a sense of, of re- revival among the people, of reformation. And what's fascinating is the the message has actually always been the same to God's people. God is not interested in in an external form of religion. He doesn't need the sacrifices. He doesn't need the incense. He wants the people to worship him alone as the one true God. He wants them to worship him from the heart. And even this, this idea of heart, we tend to think of heart as sort of the, the place where our emotions come from. We, we tend to have a, a very emotional uh, view of the heart. But for Samuel, for the Hebrew people, the heart was not just a place that, that our emotions came from, but it was really the center of all that we were. It, it may be more similar to how we would think of the brain as, as the place where our, our minds are, our thoughts are. And, and in, in the Hebrew mind, the, the heart has that idea as well. It's not just the, the seat of our emotions, but it is our minds. It is what we think about, what we meditate about, what we are devoted to, what we desire. Samuel is saying, turn your entire being to the Lord and devote yourself to him alone. It sounds actually a lot like what Paul told the Romans in Romans 12. I know we look at this uh, fairly often, but it is the same message in so many ways. The call to come and devote yourself to God. Paul writes in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is saying, You must begin to see yourself as a living sacrifice to God alone, devoted to him. This is your ongoing worship to God. And and do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, to the philosophies and the, the doctrines of this age, but be conformed to God. How do we do this? Well, it's through the renewing of our mind as we meditate upon the Word of God. We study the Word of God. We, we listen to music that, that helps us to understand the Word of God. We, we pray that God would help us fix our minds upon Him by His Spirit. And in that way, 
we are living sacrifices. This has always been at the center of the worship of God's people. And there's so many uh, passages we could look at. We can hardly um, not mention Isaiah 1 as well as we think about the prophet Isaiah's call to the people of Israel as well. It's the same message we find in Isaiah 1. <clears throat> And God uh, rebukes them for thinking that all of their outward actions are, are really what, they, that, what God wants. And God says in verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, of lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, God says to the people of Israel. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the same thing Samuel is telling the people. The same thing Paul is calling the church to. Devote yourselves to the Lord. Set aside all of the things in this world that, that are calling us to turn away. Be steadfast. Stand upon the truth. Hold fast to the gospel, to the, to the doctrine of the Christian faith. Do not be led astray. And the Lord will fight for you. And we find that not only does God bring about this gracious work through Samuel, but also God brings about a great redemption for them in a very physical way as they're gathered there and the, the uh, people come to what seems to be offer or, or to keep maybe the Feast of Tabernacles. We're not told exactly um, all that this means. We're, we're told that Samuel um, is going to pray for them. They, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord, fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So the pouring of the water, the fasting, um, the prayers of Samuel, the only feast... Uh, that, that involved the pouring out of water was the Feast of Tabernacles. So many believe maybe that's what they are keeping here. Um, it's hard to say exactly, but no doubt Samuel is leading the people in repentance to God, seeking to bring them in obedience to his word. Well, the Philistines get news of this, or they see the people of Israel gathering together. Maybe they had forbidden that. Maybe they see that as a threat. And, uh, and so what they do is say, hey, this is an opportunity to go against the Israelites once again. 
and they're, they're probably a little unsure. I mean, they've just been plagued for seven months by the ark of God in their country. You could just imagine the, the conversations that they had in trying to figure out, okay, is this really a good idea? Uh, you know, like whatever we do, we're not taking the ark. Like don't look for the ark of God. But, but no doubt they're still thinking, well, we did have an amazing victory. Uh, 44,000 of them were destroyed. We, we won. So they're going in thinking, well, Maybe we'll experience such a victory again. Yet this time, it's different because the people have set aside the idols. They have humbled themselves before God. They have confessed their sins. Samuel, now standing as a prophet of God who hears from God, he is interceding for the people. And so this time, as, the, as they draw near to the people of Israel, we're, we're told that um, that God, well, sorry, Samuel, he offer, he's offering up this lamb uh, to the Lord and he cries out to the Lord for them. And we're told in verse 10, as he was offering the burnt offering, they drew near to it. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. So now God is fighting for his people. He has heard the, the prayer of Samuel. He has seen the, 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 the humility of the people. And he is now a mighty warrior, a redeemer, who himself will protect the people of Israel. And I don't know if any of you, um, maybe some of you saw the, the thunder and lightning last night. I guess it depends probably where you were somewhat. Uh, I was down in the, the basement trying to finish up some things and just saw flashing going on so I went outside and stood on the deck for a little bit and watched um, just as I came out the door one big bolt of lightning comes across the sky and then immediately you have the the crash of thunder you know we were just talking to the boys the other day about how if you I don't know if this is true we've always done it since I was a kid you know you see the flash and then you begin counting one two three four and when you hear the thunder you know you stop counting and that's how many miles the storm is away or something was the theory but when you see the flash and hear the thunder immediately at the same time you know that you're you're right in the in the middle of this storm and uh and and thunder is is something that's very interesting there's a sense in which we we are amazed by it you know um some people maybe love thunderstorms and you want to you know go out and see the lightning and hear the thunder uh, of course for silas it was a very distressing time he was upset but it was too loud and it was scary but you could just imagine um, the power of God that is displayed through sudden thundering and lightning. And we're told that, that God brings this thunder upon them. I imagine in, in, in a tremendous way. And they're thrown into such confusion that they just begin to panic. I mean, they're already on edge. No doubt from the plagues they've just recovered from. And, and they're aware of the stories of Egypt. And now God brings thunder down upon them and drives away the enemies of Israel. And they pursue after them, we're told. And God delivers them in a mighty way in this account. A wonderful picture of what happens when God's people humble themselves before him. And they confess their sin. They draw near to God. They trust in his promises. They look to him alone to deliver them. And to be their strong support. And, and this is our ongoing battle as well. That we would have this 
single devotion to the Lord to keep our our hope fixed upon Him, upon the, the sufficiency of Christ. So in the middle of a dark time, God stirs the hearts of His people. And even though they are unsure of how to approach God, God graciously brings forward a prophet, brings about reformation to the tribes and delivers them from their enemy. And I know even uh, on Friday night with um, Ben, he was talking about the, the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And really those themes run throughout Samuel, prophet, priest, and king. And we see God here raising up a faithful prophet in Samuel. And that points us to Christ who is our faithful prophet, who is the prophet of all prophets. And just as Samuel would call the people back to God, we see that Christ, even we read in in Matthew 5, he, there on the mountain, opens his mouth, teaches the people, helps them understand the will of God and how it is they may be saved. And um, in the, the catechism questions, it asks, how does Christ execute the office of prophet? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. And that's what Samuel did, essentially. And this is what Christ does for us through his word. Jesus would clearly say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or he would tell Nicodemus, listen, Nicodemus, in order to be saved, in order to even see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. He stands as a prophet faithfully telling his people the will of God, what they must do to be saved. Where is salvation found? Christ, the faithful prophet of God. And even uh, as we wind down here, a few verses from Matthew 16 as well, considering Christ as the faithful prophet of God, who himself has fought. Peter, in uh, Matthew 16, verse 22, did not like to hear Christ talk of dying and being killed and, and raised. And he takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke Jesus says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And so Peter, thinking he understands better how it is that we might be saved, and and certainly we can identify with Peter at times. We often think we know maybe a little bit better than God on, on how things should turn out, how things should go. Like, God, you don't understand. This isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to go. And... And yet Jesus tells Peter in verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, 
and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And Jesus faithfully proclaimed the way of salvation, even when he was offered an alternative route or rebuked by Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. I am going to the cross. I'm going to die. This is the way in which I deliver my people. And in the same way, those who would follow Christ, clearly we're told it is a coming to die. It is a coming to see the end of yourself that you might be hidden in Christ, your life now controlled by his spirit, controlled by his desires, his word. We crucified with Christ and then go on carrying the cross after him that he might live through us. He is our prophet. And what a thought that Christ himself not only as the prophet, but also our king, our defender, our redeemer, that when the enemy thought he was finally subdued, finally in the tomb, it was in fact the Lord's most amazing victory, opening up rulers and principalities, Paul says, to open shame. Yes, the serpent bit his foot, but Christ dealt the serpent a mortal wound upon his head. Christ won the victory. Death, sin, the devil defeated through the cross. Our enemy chased away forever from us. And we are to hold fast to Christ, who is our faithful prophet. And so let us press on. Let us examine ourselves. Pray, Lord, if there are things within me, or if there are attitudes, if there are things that I am believing about you that are inconsistent with your word, show me, help me to set those things aside. If I'm looking even to my own works, to my own, to my own good deeds to, to somehow save me or be a sort of comfort to me, anything but Christ himself expose that in me. Help me to, to cast it aside and to be devoted unto you alone. So let's close there this morning and I will pray. And then we'll have a closing song. So bow with me, please. Father, we, th- we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are just a- reminded once again that, that you are the unchanging God. And Lord, that you are the Holy One. You are unique, Lord. Though we are made in your image and we share something of, uh, Lord, your, uh, at least some of your attributes in part as your image bearers, we know, Lord, that that as, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts above ours. And we are often blinded to our own uh, idols, to ways in which we have begun to depart, even in our thinking, even in our desires, our devotion, Lord. We, we ask that you would work in our hearts, help us to, to just, Lord, realistically um, examine ourselves in light of your word and to daily take up our cross and follow after Christ. We thank you for Christ himself offering up his own life, not simply a lamb unto you, but his own life and Lord rising in victory over the grave. Lord, help us to to understand more and more the great love that you have poured out through Christ upon us and help us to abide in him that you might 
fight for us and be our refuge in times of storm and trial. And we ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.